chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set, on him, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. All right, good afternoon. All right. Let me first say, um, so I'm really excited about our current season of home groups, right? We just launched uh, this this week, and man, our leadership team for cakes communities have just led us really well. I think in this season, uh, we've got like around uh, 55 people who've signed up uh, for groups who are meeting regularly to study the Bible together, which I think is pretty incredible uh, for a church of our size. So just praise God for that. Um, let me go ahead and pray. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Thanks for all the home group leaders and everybody who just leads in that way. Um, let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started. All right? Uh, Father, I thank you so much uh, for um, these friends, for these brothers and sisters, uh, and uh, just this time that we have now to walk through your word. Uh, as we learn uh, more about um, relationships and, and how um, you might uh, just desire to use us in those relationships, to shape us uh, through those relationships. God, I, um, I pray, God, that your word would just change us in ways that are just impossible um, with human wisdom or with wise words. Holy Spirit, uh, would you just do a miraculous work in our hearts uh, through this word? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, start with a quick story. Uh, a few... Weekends ago, um, actually, I think it was just about like two weekends ago, um, uh, we we ran out of uh, toilet or not toilet paper, paper towels uh, in our home. Which, like, when when you have a toddler, like that's one thing you do not want to run out of, right? 
paper towels. And so we ran out of paper towels, uh, and uh, it was a Saturday. And uh, I, 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 I tell Alyssa, I was like, hey, I'm going to go to the store and grab some uh, some paper towels. And I, I tell Alyssa, my wife, because I know that she had like this just rough, hard, busy week. I said, hey, why don't, why don't I take all the kids? We'll make a fun thing out of it. I'll take them out to lunch, you know, um, maybe get them a treat. And I'll take them to Target with me to, to grab these paper towels. And she's like, oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. You're like the best husband in the world. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, just kidding. That part of the conversation didn't happen. But I, I, I go to, I go, I take the kids in the car um, uh, in the van and then head out to Target and we run our errands. Uh, and while I'm there, Alyssa says, so she texts me and she says, hey, like, while you're at Target, can you also like grab these items? I'm like, yeah, sure, totally. And so we grab those items and we're looking around, which by the way, if you've been to like RSM Target, like they changed everything around. I haven't been there in like months, and when I walk in, they change everything. Like, you can't do that to a guy, right? So like, I walk in, I have no idea where any, anything is, so we're, we spend like way too long in this place, and uh, you know how Target works. It's like, oh, maybe we need that, maybe we need that, right? And so like, we're doing this stuff, and then the kids, they get excited, they're like, hey, can we get mommy this? Can we get her a candle? Can we get her flowers? Uh, uh, and I thought it was really sweet, and so I said, yeah, like, let's go ahead, let's get him, let's get her these gifts, uh, let's put them in a little gift bag, uh, we'll, we'll, make it, we'll make it sweet, and so, uh, we, we do that, we get home, I give Alyssa the gift bag from the kids, and the kids are just uh, stoked, they're excited, Alyssa's super grateful, um, and she says, hey, where are the paper towels? And I'm like, oh shoot, <laughs> right? I realize I'm an idiot, right? Like I forgot the what, like I had one job, uh, and I did not do my one job. And my point being that like, man, when, uh, when you've got a lot going on, uh, when you're when you're maybe distracted, when maybe you haven't rehearsed your your mission for a while, uh, it, it's easy to get off mission, right? Um, and what we're talking about uh, this afternoon is so key, is so key to our mission as a church. And we really want you to understand how your relationship with others, how your relationship with your neighbors, uh, what God has to say about that. I mean, so what we're, what we're asking throughout this, this little mini-series is, is we're saying, hey, what does the Bible have to say about some of our most formative relationships, right? What does God have to say? We've talked about marriage, right? What does God have to say about, about our, our parenting? What does God have to say about our friendships? Uh, and why do things often go wrong in these relationships? And then how does the gospel of Jesus now change us and empower us towards a better way? And so today, the, this afternoon, we're looking at the topic of uh, neighboring, right? Being a good neighbor. What does it mean when the Bible uh, calls us, when God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves? Now, to answer that, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Uh, now, this is one of Jesus' parables that he has. Uh, we're actually uh, going to study this exact parable uh, towards the end of this season of home groups. Um, so we're, you're going to sort of get a tease of that uh, this afternoon. But this is like probably one of the best known parables of Jesus, both inside the church and outside the church. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, maybe you've heard of it, right? Um, that, 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 that popular relief agency, like Samaritan's Purse, that helps people need, like during whenever disaster hits, like this is where they get their name from, from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, most people, they know the bare story of the Good Samaritan uh, in verses 30 through 35, uh, and it's often used uh, as a way to teach people how to be nice to each other, right? How to be nice to others, but what I think you'll see is when we actually look at the broader context, 
There's so much more here that has huge gravity and weight on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So with that, turn to verse 25 of Luke 10. Luke 10, verse 25, it begins and it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, put Jesus, to the test. Now, when we see that word lawyer, like what do you picture, right? You probably picture suit and tie. You probably picture like law and order. If you're an MCU fan, maybe you picture like She-Hulk or Daredevil, right? Like, like that, those are the pictures that we have with lawyer, but like it's not that kind of lawyer. The CSB actually translate the Greek word there, uh, nomikos, as expert in the law, right? An expert in the law. And, that, and that's, that's a better way to translate that, I think. So this isn't, and we're not talking civil laws. We're actually talking religious laws. So what that means is that this guy, this, this lawyer as he's described, this guy is a religious scholar of some sort. He's an expert in the religious laws of the day. And so this expert in religious law, he walks up to Jesus and says to put him to the test, which, by the way, is something you do not want to do, right? Bold move right there. He goes up to Jesus to put him to the test. Now, why would this guy, why would this guy want to uh, confront Jesus in this way anyway? Why would this guy want to test Jesus? It's because word has gone out. Word has gotten around that Jesus is the kind of guy who's always welcoming people who disobey the religious laws that this guy upheld, uh, as guys like him understood them. Uh, Jesus was known, he had a reputation for welcoming sinners. And so this guy, this religious law expert, he's suspicious of Jesus. He doesn't know what to make of Jesus, and he wants to expose Jesus as the fraud that he's convinced Jesus is, so he wants to expose Jesus as someone that doesn't really care about God at all, It doesn't really care about or understand or respect God's law, and so he <coughs> confronts Jesus to put him to the test. The verse continues. He says that he says, uh, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what must I do to become saved? What must I do to be accepted by God? He expects Jesus to say something like, oh, oh, it doesn't matter how you live. Like, do whatever you want because God's going to love you anyways. He's going to accept you anyways. That's what he expects Jesus to say because of the rumors going around which would then contradict much of the Bible. And so he sort of like lays out this trap for Jesus. But Jesus has got his own trap ready. You see, the law expert, he was trying to put Jesus to the test. But what Jesus is going to do is he's going to just one-up him and show him that this test is an entirely wrong question to be asking. He replaces the whole test altogether. Now, look what happens. It says the law expert quotes from... um, uh, or, or right here, Jesus replies in verse 26. It says, uh, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? He's like, hey, you know, you're an expert in the law. Why don't you tell me what's written in the law? How do you read it? In verse 27, he answers and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Um, by the way, do you recognize that? We just looked at this a couple weeks ago uh, when we talked about parenting. Uh, he quotes here from the Shema, from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, it's one of the most foundational commands in all the scriptures. But then he adds this quote from uh, elsewhere in Deuteronomy, and he says, and you also got to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the first thing I want you to see from this text. Number one, Jesus connects loving God with loving our neighbors. Jesus connects loving God with loving our neighbors. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, look, love God with every part of your being and your neighbor. Then you will experience life as God intended it. I mean, verse 27, if you look at it again, it says that, that this guy, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. This is a call to love God with all of who you are, with all of who you are. And the point he's trying to get across is that as when you love God with all of who you are, it's, it's, it's holistic, it's, it's integrated, it's, it's, it's healthy, right? It's all of who you are. It's, it's to make him, to make God the greatest passion of your life, to make him the undisputed champion of your heart, the one that you think about uh, first every single day. It's also a call to love your neighbor as yourself. As verse 27 continues, he says, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? It means you care about your neighbor's needs as though they were your own. You rejoice in their wins as much as you do your own. You weep in their sorrow as much as you do your own. You extend the hand of friendship that we talked about last week. You're, you're fully present with them. Have a heart for, of care and concern and love. Now, this, this statement, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, uh, is also quoted by Jesus in Mark chapter 12. And there, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus calls these two commands, to love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus calls those two commands uh, the first greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. And when he calls it that in Mark 12, he says the second commandment is a lot like the first. In other words, Jesus says you can't divorce your love for God from your love for others. And you can't separate, you can't divorce your love for others from your love for God. They just come one and the same. We could say it this way, if you love God, if you love the God of the gospel, rather, if you love the God of the gospel, you will also love those around you who need that gospel. If you love, if you truly love the God of the gospel, then you're going to love those around you who also need that gospel. You see, Jesus replies to the guy in verse 28, and he says to him, hey, you've answered correctly. You've answered correctly. Do that, do this, and you will live which kind of makes you laugh because that's like, man, that's a big do this, right? And the law expert, he then has a hard time swallowing what Jesus just said because he's probably thinking about all the ways that his life falls short of that. And then in verse 29, he says, but he, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, all right, well, who's my neighbor, right? Like, give me to me in bite-sized form. He's feeling the weight of this command. And so what does he try to do? He tries to limit what it means so that he can actually, like, meet the requirements of this command. All this guy cares about, all this guy cares about is himself, his own soul. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, he used to, he used to tell this uh, story, this analogy, often in his sermons. And he, he talks about how there was this, uh, just this humble farmer uh, who was uh, walking along this road, and uh, the, the, the king comes with his, with his chariot, uh, and he, he, they cross each other on the, on, on the road, and the farmer says, hey, your majesty, I have a gift for you. Uh, and, he, and he gives the king a carrot, 
just a beautiful, juicy carrot from his garden. And the king is so moved by that. And he's like, man, this, you, you grew this carrot and you're, you're, you're giving this to me. He's like, thank you so much uh, for this gift. I'd love to have you as a guest over uh, at the castle uh, sometime soon. Uh, and, then, and then they part their ways. And then this, this nobleman uh, kind of sees this interaction at a distance. And he's like, man, like the king was so stoked about that carrot. Like, I wonder what I'm going to get if I give him one of my most prized possessions. And so he, he like, uh, like approaches the king, crosses paths with him on the road, uh, and, and this nobleman says, hey, your majesty, I have a gift for you. I want you to take this, um, this, this strong, sturdy steed uh, from, from my stable. And the king says, wow, like, thank you so much for this, for this gift. And then he goes on his way. And, and the nobleman's like really confused. And he's like, man, why did he respond differently to me than he did the farmer? Uh, and the king, knowing how he's thinking, says, you know, the reason that I responded differently is because the farmer, the farmer, he, he gave me that carrot, that wonderful carrot. But you, you gave that horse to yourself. You're just looking out for yourself. And that's kind of like the heart behind this guy and the questions that he's asking. He's saying to Jesus, he's like, all right, all right, okay, so love my neighbors myself. Tell me, who's my neighbor, right? Give me the list. I'll do those. I'll do those. I'll, 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 I'll get eternal life if I just do, do all these, these things that you're telling me. Now, now just, just hear me when I say this, all right, because it's important when we're reading this parable is that you want to avoid the kind of heart and posture and understanding that this law expert has, all right? There is nothing that you can do to earn your way into heaven. That's not the point of this parable. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. The whole reason Jesus came is because we can't earn our way into heaven. He came from heaven to live the life that we could never live, a perfect life a perfect life of loving God and loving others. He died to death that we deserve to die so that when he rose from the grave, and he did, uh, those of us who are united to him in faith can have what he has and be sons and daughters of the living God. Now, look what happens next. What Jesus is gonna do is gonna turn this guy's question up uh, on its head. He's gonna shift the question from a question about eternity, which is all this guy wants to talk about, to what it actually means to love your neighbor. Point number two. Jesus expands the definition of neighbor. Jesus expands the definition of neighbor. Uh, verse 30, it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he starts to tell his story. He says, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now the road, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a steep drop. All right, it was at 3,500 feet, had all these turns and corners and zigzags. It was known for being a really dangerous road. They called it the way of blood or the road of blood because it was uh, like a hot spot for thieves to rob people. And that's exactly what happens. As verse 30 continues, it says that this man who was traveling, he fell among robbers. He ran into some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, uh, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he, he passed by on the other side. In other words, like he avoided him and walked around him. And this guy's like, this guy's described as, as a priest, but he went around to the other side. And, and you're probably thinking like, like isn't, isn't this guy the priest? Isn't he supposed to be the good guy? Exactly. That's what you're supposed to think, right? And the verse 32 says, likewise, a Levite 
which is another kind of priest, kind of like the JV priest, right? So a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed by him, by, by him on the other side too. Now, listen, it's easy for us to sort of get on our high horse and think, man, I would have helped that guy, right? Like, I would have acted differently. But what you need to know is that the Levitical priests, which is what these two guys were, they had all kinds of religious duties that they would do on behalf of people, right? A priest would go into Jerusalem, which is, remember, where they're all coming from. So he went into Jerusalem to be purified. That's what a priest would do. He'd go into Jerusalem to be purified, which is a week-long process, and he had to do that before carrying out his religious duties. And this is the famous road that he would go on uh, on the way back to uh, wherever his uh, assignment was, wherever his uh, community of faith was. And according to Jewish law, if you touched a man uh, that was bleeding after you've been purified, then you had to go back to the temple and purify yourself all over again, which again was a week-long process. There were also these other Levitical laws that you can actually read about in the book of Leviticus. There's all these other laws that said that if your food was ever gotten to contact with somebody that was unclean or bleeding out, then you had to throw that food out, right? Uh, and if you, if you stop to help somebody, if you stop to help a guy like this, then basically you're forfeiting your food for your family. So maybe when you understand it like that, maybe you can sort of see this guy's dilemma, right? These people's dilemma. You can sort of feel the pull uh, and the tension of, of why they were tempted to go around the other side. But look what happens in verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The Samaritan sees me as compassion, verse 34, and he went to him, he bound up his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, hey, take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And so this Samaritan, he helps the guy out. He takes him to a safe place. He uses his own money, and then he gives the guy this open line of credit until he's, until he's better again. Now, this, you got to understand, is a huge plot twist. All right? Huge plot twist, because if you were there when Jesus is telling this story, as soon as you hear Jesus say the word Samaritan, your jaw would hit the floor. Because you would know that at the temple, there were like three types of people who had religious duties. You had the priest, you had the Levite, and then you also have just the average lay leader that was kind of helping out in the temple. And so, like, if you're there hearing this story, you're hearing the priest, you're hearing the Levite, and you're expecting the hero, the third guy, to be just like the average dude, right? The average Joe. Uh, no offense, Joe, right? To be like, you expect him to be the great hero of the story, right? But who's the third person who shows up instead? The Samaritan. This homeboy's not even a Jew. The Samaritan shows up. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the Samaritans were like the sworn enemies of the Jews. When the ten, ten tribes of uh, the north of, of Israel were dragged away into exile uh, by Assyria, there were a few survivors left there. And the Assyrians, they would imported uh, women to intermingle with those survivors and so that their descendants of those women and those survivors were uh, what we consider the Samaritans. 
And so they were considered like unclean half-bloods, right? And a few hundred years later, when the two tribes in the south, they were dragged into exile, those survivors, they drew a line in the sand and they said, no, we're not going to intermarry. Uh, They're like, you know, we're descendants of Joseph. We're in the land of Joseph. We're we're actually going to build an alternate altar and say that this one is the true altar. And so so they they were like really proud of how they did not intermarry. Now, how do you think that those guys in the south thought about those in the north? Not well. They did not think well of them. The Jews, they saw Samaritans as half-breed heretics. The Samaritans saw Jews as racist and cruel. And the Samaritans, they weren't exactly nice either. Right? They were known for robbing caravans of Jews on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. They would vandalize the temple during Passover. And so these two groups, they hated each other, sworn enemies. And who does Jesus make the hero in a story for Jewish people? The enemy. The other. The Samaritan. Verse 36 Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? There's that word neighbor. And the man says, he replies, the one who showed him mercy. Which this guy, this guy, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, yeah, you go and do likewise. And that's the end of the parable. Now, In these verses, in this parable, what we see is a significant redefining of what it means to be a neighbor from the very words of Jesus. I don't want you to miss it. First, Jesus broadens the definition of neighbor, all right? He broadens the definition of neighbor. What, According to this parable, your neighbor is not just who lives next door. It's not just who lives on your street. Your neighbor now includes your enemy, It includes the guy that you hate. It includes the girl that you can't stand or that you just don't get. It includes those who are different from you. It includes those that you might think are difficult. Or maybe even it's pettier than that, just people that you just don't think are cool enough, right? But what does the parable tell us? The parable tells us that, hey, when you're with Jesus, everyone's your neighbor because everyone is an object of God's love and you are a conduit of that love. The Samaritan and the Jew could not have had uh, uh, less things in common. And look, it's natural for us to be there for people who look like us and who talk like us and who like the things that we like. It's easy for us to help those that we most closely identify with. But Jesus, he taught that we're to help people, uh, to help those that you even have in little co- in common with, even those who may have wronged you in some way. I mean, think about Jesus at the Last Supper. I, it just boggles my mind the first time like, like I realized this. At the Last Supper, the Bible says that Jesus, he knew who his betrayer was. I mean, he's sitting there with his disciples, and he's like, one of you has betrayed me. And that betrayal is about to go down. He knows exactly who it is, right? That Bible also says that Jesus knelt before his disciples right before their supper, and he washed the feet of all of his disciples, the act of a servant, the lowest servant, He washed the feet of his disciples, including the guy who would betray him for some coin. I mean, this guy was going to betray him just for 30 pieces of silver. 
which is not a lot, by the way, right? That's money that just jingle jingles, right? It's not a lot. Thank you, someone got that. <laughs> but then, in a way, Jesus also, so he, he expands, he broadens the definition of neighbor, but then in a way, he also narrows the definition of neighbor, right? He says your neighbor is also just a person who's just right in front of you. Look, whoever it is that you do life around, that's your neighbor. Love them. Love them. Look, we believe in a God who's sovereign, a God who's big, a God who's in control. And if we believe in a sovereign God who calls us to different places and jobs, who, who births us into one family and not another, who makes it so that we're born in one century and not another, and if we believe that we are a sent people, sent by a God who is sovereign and in control, then you know that this God makes no mistakes. You will love the people around you and love not only those that God has placed on your heart, but you'll love those that God has placed in your path because you know that they can't be there by mistake. You're an ambassador of light in a broken and dark world that is just screaming for hope and renewal. The first century, uh, in the first century, innovation brought like a ton of new roads uh, out in the ancient Near East where... Uh, Jesus and the early, his early disciples like lived. And followers of Jesus at that time, uh, as the first churches were planting, um, uh, they, were, they were found themselves in this place where uh, because of these new innovations and these new roads coming up, you could travel across the Mediterranean uh, in ways that you never could before. Uh, but the problem with that is that the, the roads went up so quickly, but there were no places for anyone to stay. Uh, and I mean, back then, you know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have trains, you were travel by foot or by animal. Uh, and, and so, like, you could travel across the Mediterranean, but you needed places to stop and stay, to rest or to sleep for the night. The followers of Jesus, they picked up more, like, nobody else did this. Nobody else did this. Followers of Jesus, they picked up on their cultural moment and on the needs around them to the point where the, the, this bishop in uh, Constantinople, a uh, church father named uh, Chrysostom, he wrote this letter out to churches. And he tells them, he told them, make for yourselves a guest chamber in your own house. Set up a bed there, a table uh, and a candlestick. Have a room to which Christ may come and dwell. In other words, he's saying, hey, if somebody comes in to, as a visitor, like, treat them the way that you would treat Christ. Welcome them the way that you would welcome Christ. And he says, this building is set apart for him. Your home is set apart for Jesus, to be used in this way by Jesus. And you know what? Man, Christians throughout the ancient Near East in the first century, they did that. They did that, and they were known. They were known for their hospitality. They were known for making a difference. I mean, you see this, this mentality of welcoming, uh, your, welcoming the other, welcoming a stranger, turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family uh, all throughout church history. Um, I've, I've told here the story before about uh, Charles Spurgeon um, uh, when in, in the end of the 20th century, um, no, that was here, that was recently, the end of the 19th century, sorry, the end of the 19th century, um, uh, when the Industrial Revolution uh, broke out, um, all these people were flocking to London. And what happened is that crime went up. Crime went up. Uh, the uh, amount of suicides went up. Uh, the poverty went up. Uh, and, and all this 
uh, people were like leaving the city uh, because of it. A lot of churches left the city because of it. They're like, oh, we don't want to be around all this craziness. Uh, and then Spurgeon and his church, Metropolitan Tabernacle, they, they kind of uh, planted their banner in the ground, and they, and they said, you know what? Like, we're not going to leave. We're going to stay because there's so many needs here, right? Of all people, as Christians, we should be the ones to stay when things get bad because who else is going to do that? He says, we aren't leaving. We're going to meet these needs. Um, I was going to say a thing about people moving to Idaho, but I won't. <laughs> all right, point number three. Point number three, the shift our culture needs. The shift our culture needs, all right? Verse 38 says, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Welcomed Jesus into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and so she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister is left to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, really quickly, what I want you to see in these last verses is just the living embodiment of what Jesus taught in the parable. Love your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? The person right in front of you in your day-to-day -day life. Those are who you are to love. Man, what if, what if we saw ourselves as missionaries in this world, right? That's what the Bible calls us. It says that we are ambassadors of God's kingdom. What if we actually saw ourselves as that, as missionaries in this world? What if we saw our homes as missionary posts in our neighborhood? What if we saw our tables as a tangible expression of love and service to our neighbors? I think for a lot of us, a lot of us, especially like in, in, uh, in suburban, upper middle class, um, a place like where we live, I think for a lot of us, our homes are a place where we retreat, right? It's a place to hide from the world, a place to watch the game, to binge watch Netflix or Hulu, to sleep, to relax. A typical follower of Jesus doesn't think of their home much differently than a typical non-follower of Jesus, we don't talk to our neighbors. We protect our personal space. Look, there's something to be said about being relationally and physically present in the community that you live in. Not just the family that lives across the street or the couple in the apartment underneath you, but, but your coworker across the cubicle aisle, the barista at the coffee shop, the cashier in the checkout or the server at the restaurants that you eat at, by Jesus' definition, these are neighbors for you to love. Man, I, I can't remember where I first uh, heard this, but I've been doing this like ever since. Um, but I, you can see a difference. You can see like the just a, a tangible, in-your-face difference when you call your server at a restaurant by their name. Because servers are used to getting trampled on getting yelled at, being complained about. No one treats them like a person. They're used to being not treated with dignity and value and worth. But man, as Christians who see all people as made in the image of God, 
If you just remember your server's, your server's name and then call them by their name uh, every time you ask them a question instead of, hey, excuse me, right? If you actually call them by their name, right? Man, it makes a difference in their day. You just see them light up. I hope, I hope you know your neighbor's names. I hope you pray for them. Hopefully you have them into your home. Man, let's be a community of Jesus that is known like Jesus was for our hospitality and kindness. Let's be a community of Jesus that's known for our service, for loving our neighbors as ourselves. I'll tell you, my wife Alyssa is an amazing example of this uh, for me. She's always talking about how hospitality is less about like, 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 like if we're worried that like we can't host somebody because the house isn't like put together enough or, or we, we don't have enough time to clean, like she's always talking about how hospitality is less about being put together and more about being present. She talks about how it's a commitment to be less of a here I am person and to be more of a there you are person. I love that. Our culture, our culture needs this posture of heart. You know why? Because we live in a culture that's broken. It's isolated. It's an individualistic culture. It's a toxic us versus them culture. And I think deep down inside, our neighbors know that they are starved for real connection. We're starved for a community of grace. So here's the shift that our culture needs. Let's say it this way. What if we saw our homes not as castles to retreat into, but as outposts for the kingdom of God in the world? What if we saw our homes not as castles to retreat into, but as outposts for the kingdom of God in the world? I love the vision put forth by uh, Pastor John Tyson. He pastors a church in uh, uh, Hell's Kitchen. And he wrote some years back a book called Sacred Roots. And in this, he just kind of dreams about what this would look like. He said, what would love look like if the church showed up in people's lives multiple times per week in small but profound ways? Meals cooked, prayers prayed, songs sung, scriptures studied, games played, parties thrown, tears shed, reconciliation practice, resources given? What if we stopped attending groups, just merely attending groups, and instead became groups of communities who actually engaged with each other and communities together? What if our homes stopped being the places we hide from the world, but havens to which the world comes for healing? What if? What if? Imagine Imagine how different your neighborhood would look if this what if became a reality in your home. What if followers of Jesus were regularly in community with each other on the street? What if strangers became neighbors and neighbors became family? What if Christian homes were places where anyone is welcomed to the table? And that that table was one of the few places that people could feel that they're safe to be imperfect because there's grace in the air. What if Christians threw the best parties on the street and no one had to get drunk to have a good time? 
because of, and they were the best parties because the conversations were meaningful and the laughs were plentiful. Imagine if people truly knew you, if people knew your marriage, if they knew your family, if you're a man that you're known by other men as someone who's a spiritual leader in the home, if you're a woman that you're known for your kindness and your warmth and never gossiping. And as people see you and see your family and see your marriage, they, you're okay with them seeing the messiness too because you're comfortable being known as a mess in need of grace. This is what Jesus looks like in flesh and blood. This is what a community of Jesus looks like. Do you see your home as primarily yours or do you see it as a gift that came from the Father, belongs to him, but given to you to steward. There's no better place to begin than your own table and your own home. Francis Schaeffer, um, theologian from uh, the, the, the 20th century, he started this fellowship called uh, Labrie. Um, and the tagline for Labrie is that they were shelter for people in need with honest questions. So people had needs, they were broken, uh, they could come and they could ask honest questions about God and, and faith and life and truth. Uh, and uh, if you don't know the success of Labrie, it just, it just uh, God really blessed it. And there's like people have started uh, Labrie fellowships like all around the world. It became this movement. And uh, somebody once asked uh, Francis Schaeffer, um, they wanted to start something similar and they asked him, Hey, how, how, how can we do it? You've got this huge movement, people coming for shelter in times of need with honest questions. How do I start something like that? And Schaefer's answer was, when you do this, don't start with a big program. Don't start with a lot of resources. I recommend you just start with one person at your table in your home. Man, there's so much wisdom in that. Our God, if you read the Bible, you know that our God is the kind of God that takes ordinary, simple, things that look like meaningless, small things, and does extraordinary things through them. See, there's no better place to begin than your own table in your own home. Now, this might sound like a lot of pressure. And so I want to close by talking about number four, where we get the strength to love others well. Where we get the strength to love others well. Now, uh, again, I talked to you about how I learned so much from my wife about this. What you need to know is that my wife is also like not perfect at this, all right? And she'll be the first to tell you that. She'll be the first to tell you that. Like, people are always talking about, like, oh, your wife is such a sweetheart. She's such an angel. Like, she just has such a heart for people. And you're right. Like, she does. But that heart comes from hours upon hours of just spending time with Jesus. And there are times where, where it's really difficult for her um, to open up the home because of great inconvenience that it might be to, like, her personally or to the rhythms of our family, Right? Uh, and, and, but she will willingly do that because she knows that the cost is worth it. 
because of what Jesus has done for her. How Jesus tells his parable was, if you think about it, pretty brilliant. He could have said to the guy with his question, he could have said, hey, imagine a man like you is going down a road and then passes a Samaritan who's in need, right? So, so Jesus could have switched the roles and said, hey, imagine that a guy like you is in need. A Samaritan is on the road, right? Like, and, and imagine that a guy like you would stop and cared for him and like just did all these things like in the parable, right? The guy, the law expert, he would probably laugh at Jesus, Right? He's like, what kind of Jew would do that for a Samaritan? He would laugh at Jesus. But instead, what Jesus does is he puts the Israelite, the Jew on the ground, and he puts the hated enemy, the other, the Samaritan on the road traveling. He's asking, what if it were you lying on the road? What if you were the one who'd been robbed of your worth and your life was bleeding out? What if your only hope was an act of grace from an enemy that you've wronged, that you've resisted, that you've pushed against? You see, Jesus is not giving a long list of things to do. He's giving a whole new dynamic and way to see things, a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a life shaped by grace. Only if you've tasted that kind of grace would you start to look at everyone differently. Only if you know what it's like to yourself be the helpless enemy that was saved by undeserved grace, then can you be empowered to love others the way that you've been loved. And we have all of that in Jesus. You see, because of him, because of who Christ is and what he's done for us, because of him, you can look at any neighbor, even the people that you used to dislike because they were the wrong personality or the wrong political party or the wrong social class or the wrong race. You can open up your life to share the kindness of God to them, to be present, to be of help. And when the opportunity arises to look at them and say, Man, I was saved by someone who didn't owe me anything. I've been saved by grace. Where do we get the strength to love others well? It's in knowing that when we are weak, God is strong. When we were in need, he showed up. When we, because of our sin, least deserved it, he reached down. He healed us from our sin. He covered us from our wounds. He gave us a place to stay and an open line of credit and says, man, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.